You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Episode 188 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're sneaking up on 200. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Also joining me, an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. How's it going, Nathan? Oh, I'm, I'm in the last week of my crazy overload lesson planning year. Uh, mm. You know, as of Monday, in other words, when this podcast drops... I'll be looking forward to a fall semester where I'm back on my normal load. Nathan actually teaches every class at Emmanuel College this year. <laughs> so, some days it feels like it. Calisthenics, advanced <laughs> physics. Nice. Italian for beginners. The homiletics lab. I'm sure he would love that one. <laughs> Wait, is there a homiletics lab? Is that a real thing? There was, there was at my college. What, wow. What do you do in a homiletics lab? Well, what it was, it was it was a sound. It was it was basically a room with a sound booth. They they couldn't and, and and they called it the homiletics lab because you couldn't hold that particular that particular class in any other space in the building because it was set up for it was set up for sound recording. Hmm. It, it was kind of it was kind it was kind of a hopes. joke. Yeah, it was a joke, uh, but you know, I, I, I thought it was funny. The man whose jokes yeah. are, I still think it's funny. The man whose jokes are falling flat is the very drippy David Grubbs in Houston, Texas. Yes. Yeah, that's a cold that you're hearing, dear listeners. If I am somewhat less loquacious than is my want, um, yeah, there's if the reason. David Grubbs sounds even low and more lower and more grumbly than usual. It's because yeah. he's sick. <laughs> yep. Well, today is the conclusion of our three-part series on Jedediah Purdy's 1999 book, For Common Things. I almost called it a novel because I've been grading too many papers from students who think <laughs> literally everything anybody ever wrote is a novel. Yeah, one, one, once you crest 93 pages, novel. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read very many of Shakespeare's novels I had a student write. <laughs> Me neither, I wrote back. <laughs> Lost to history. We have talked uh, several times about the philological work that Purdy does in this book. And Nathan, chapter 5 begins with another example of that. What does the word neighbor mean today, and how is that meaning different from its meaning in previous eras? It's interesting because in the 17 years since the book, I really haven't heard people use the word neighbor in this way, but certainly the concept has stuck around. Purdy starts out talking about a pre-automobile society uh, in which, you know, you basically travel around the world at about three miles an hour uh, where the people you knew and the people you spent time with, the people with whom you lived your life, unless you were a truly exceptional case, uh, were the people within, you know, give or take an hour's walk of where you slept. Uh, So in that context, you had, in a, in a fairly straightforward sense, you know, rich interacting with poor. You had, you know, people of, of different family backgrounds interacting with each other. You had people who, frankly, didn't like each other very much uh, spending all of their time together because that's about as far as you can get at three miles an hour. What Purdy is concerned about and what he sort of digs into in the first part of Chapter 5 is the notion that in... First of all, an, a, an automobile culture, uh, we shouldn't you know, pretend that this begins with the internet by any means because the automobile does it first and then telephones certainly do their work on it. But eventually, the internet, and of course he's publishing this in 1999 when Google has just come online when it's really only a relative handful of uh, 
internet nerds. I was one of them. I uh, had their own web pages. Uh, but, you know, in this context, you don't have what we know as the web 2.0 or the social media sphere. But even so, Purdy looks at it and says, what you get is people who are affiliating not by geographic proximity, uh, but by interest groups. So in other words, uh, people who are really, really into Back to the Future can all listen to the Christian Humanist podcast on Back to the Future. People who are really, really into uh, Pokemon can get together only with people who enjoy throwing cardboard at each other, uh, and so on and so forth, so that you don't really get that mixture of people uh, that you would have gotten, again, you know, no longer than 100 years ago. Where I think this is interesting is, although Purdy doesn't talk a whole lot about it, because as we discussed before, uh, his work tends to be, you know, I, I won't say dogmatically secular, but de facto secular, uh, is that I've seen similar arguments about the automobile's effect on church culture. Uh, the automobile not only gives rise to the megachurch, as many people have written about, uh, but it also makes possible things like... Uh, biker churches and you know emergent churches and churches geared toward this or that demographic uh so this phenomenon is certainly something that uh like i said i've never really heard anyone anyone call it neighbors uh but certainly when you talk about you know the spheres of acquaintance that define our lives uh i certainly see that going on david i mean have, have you heard people call each other neighbors on the internet um, I don't happen to recall, I don't happen to recall that one. I mean, I remember getting, I mean, you know, you get friend requests on, on Facebook, but mm -hmm. I, I can't even remember what it was called on, uh, AOL and I mean, you remember prodigy. No. I mean, presumably there was another human being <laughs> on the other side of that. I, I, I uh, just have it, but one of my friend's older sisters, she had this thing, and we would kind of like watch over her shoulder as like her computer talked to other computers. And it was anyway all all the hacker fantasies rising to the fore. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't I don't get the exact reference in terms of neighbor, but mm -hmm. uh. You know, he—I mean—he's right about the uh, about the etymology. It's an old English neighbor just means the one who dwells nigh, mm -hmm. uh, your nigh dweller person. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think he's suggesting we've lost something by the uh, voluntary neighbor? Well, I mean, he, he's certainly Absolutely. careful to say that we shouldn't be nostalgic about this. Uh, after all, I mean. Uh, the sort of small town life certainly has its vices. Uh, you know, there's certainly, you know, nothing that you want to sing the praises of in being the foreigner or the outsider in a very homogenous small town with no means of escape. That said, I think he does want to say that we've lost something in that we really can tune people out once we decide we don't like them anymore. And it gets escalated on the internet because we can, in a very straightforward sense, with a mouse click, remove somebody from our lives. Uh, and, you know, later on we can add them back, but only if we feel like it. Uh, and I think that that uh, discipline of the, of the neighbor as someone who simply appears in your life uh, is something that Purdy, again, doesn't want to be nostalgic about. But he does want to say that whatever that is, we really have lost it. And if we don't realize that we've lost it, we are ignorant of our own situation. Am, am I overplaying that, David? I don't think you are, though I am inclined to be sentimental about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I do think it's interesting that, as he's dis that, that, that he has this whole discussion of the, the shift of the concept of neighbor and I mean, I know, I know that it's his frame of reference, and we've talked about it already in, in a couple of episodes. But there's no good Samaritan here. There's no love thy neighbor as thyself mm -hmm. in 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 this discourse. Um, the whole question of who is my neighbor uh, is precisely the one that he's addressing. And um, I, I I think the that 
for a Christian, the ethical implications of this section should hit even harder because what we see and what he's, what he's explaining is via technology, um, you know, the, this, the interwebs, uh, we, we are able to define ever more strictly and tightly our answer to who is my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with the resulting uh, exclusion in, in an ethical sense from our imagination of whole swaths of people that uh, I think uh, Jesus would probably have us put there. Don't you think, though, that the, the Internet also fosters an expansion of who's your neighbor? I, I, I agree with you. It can turn into this echo chamber where there was a great, I think it was Clickhole article a few years ago about... Uh, <laughs> a real uh, insightful Clickhole article? Well, you know, Clickhole's <laughs> the greatest thing human beings have ever produced. But, but it, 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 I, I can't remember the... It was, it was a guy who uh, it, it said that he, he, he's putting everybody on his friend list at... Uh, on alert that he'll delete them if they say things he doesn't like. It was much funnier than I just made it sound. Anyway, mm, so, so yeah. that's one way to do the internet. But isn't another way to do the internet to be globally connected and recognize more people as your neighbor? At least in theory. At least in theory. But, I mean, certainly you, I mean, you can have a kind of connection with, with, with more people. But there's still a, a madeness to that relationship, not a givenness. To that relationship, which is which, which is the case in this in this other paradigm that he's saying we've lost, um, mm-hmm. you know, in which your neighbor is just the person who's there, and you've got to deal with it. Um, I can decide to not let this probably fake person on Facebook to not be my friend. You know, I could be like, I don't, I don't think you're a real person and I've never heard of you. So, so no, I could, I could just decide that I don't want to let my grandmother be my Facebook friend. She doesn't know. Yeah. You you know what I mean? There, there, there is a, um, you get to curate your friend list. Yeah. In a way that, in a way that, in a way that you can't curate your neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) or, or, or shouldn't. You can move, but you're right. I mean, you're you're talking about levels of givenness here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There are always but, levels. Well, On the other in hand, a society with absolutely no social mobility, there are not levels. Everything is just given, right? So, right. so if you live on the land that your parents lived on, and and so forth into perpetuity, uh, everything is given. You you have no right. choice over who your neighbors are. In e- even in a pre-internet modern society, that you can always move to a different subdivision, move to a different building. Whatever. Right. Switch jobs. Um, Build well, there's another way around your property. I, I I don't mind that in terms of Facebook because I, I've compared Facebook in the past to um, the most awkward party in w- to which everyone you know has been invited, <laughs> and and they're all standing around talking at the same time, and. <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 to me it, it, it's, it's you know it's, it's it's something paralyzing. So if you can imagine a neighborhood in which, you know, everybody's house abuts your backyard and they are all looking over the fence yelling at you at once. <laughs> I, mean, I at, feel at like some I f- point, at some point, you gotta you gotta build some higher fences. I feel <laughs> like Facebook was invented to let me know that I'm the smartest person all my friends know. Because <laughs> anytime you see one of your friends, other friends talking to them on Facebook, you think, "Man, what an idiot!" Oh goodness, yeah. And I'm looking at exchanges uh, that you've had with my uh, Facebook contacts, Michael, and I <laughs> that I, I, I won't lie; it makes me a bad person. But uh, they did amuse me. <laughs> I, I hope you're amused at their uh, their idiocy and not my own. <laughs> Oh, I'm just amused at the exchange because, again, uh, you know, the folks with whom I've seen you fight, I've not met them in person. You know, I knew them from the 1990s Internet message board days uh, when, you know, Jedediah Purdy was writing this book. So, I mean, I sort of picked them up as acquaintances in the culture that he's describing. They have kind of followed me over into the social media era. And then you and I, who ran into each other in grad school and have become friends. 
now you have an occasion to do battle with people I've never actually met in person. We know each other in meat space. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's right. I love that term. I love meat space. Oh, I think it's so gross. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I love it because it, uh, it it's it's so aggressively reminding you of of the of of our yucky embodiedness. I just I just mm-hmm. feel like it means you run into each other at the butcher shop or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, though, that in the last few years, as my kids and my neighbor's kids have all kind of, you know, gotten to the age where they're always wanting to knock on each other's doors, sometimes at 830 on a Saturday morning, not that I'm bitter, um, I, I really have come to appreciate what Purdy is talking about here, because there is something different about, you know, our next door neighbor's homeschool kids and the neighbors from across the street you know who go to private school and my own kids who are public schooled all kind of running around together injuring each other on the trampoline having lightsaber <laughs> fights that is qualitatively different from what you know what i would experience in an internet encounter so i mean i am more and more i, I used to minimize this i'll put it that way but more and more i've come to appreciate what birdie's talking about would you say that the trampoline is a commons? Um, it's a commons and also a gladiatorial arena. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hazardous environment. Oh, is it ever? <laughs> now, do you have the sides on it, or is it? Oh, it's not mine. And 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 it, that I mean, actually, the trampoline is a perfect example because when I, you know, when when Micah was first born, I was one of these idiots who thought that I could control my children's lives. And uh, I said, you know, my kids are never going to play on one of those things. They are just made to injure children. I'm going to make sure they never go around it. Well, now, I mean, my kids are on that daggum trampoline four days a week. A lawsuit waiting to happen. (laughs) No, I'm not going to sue anybody. I, I, I know that I've told my kids not to be dumb on that thing and they don't listen, so... You just gotta you just gotta move that trampoline over next to a in ground pool. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a great idea. <laughs> Fantastic concussions and drowning. <laughs> then you can really get some money from your neighbors. <laughs> well, Purdy spends the cool. Purdy spends the bulk of chapter five talking about technology, and he particularly talks about biotechnology, which was brand new and in the news a lot in 1999. Mm-hmm. What sorts of ethical and political questions does biotechnology raise, David? And and have the intervening 17 years answered them at all? It is to laugh. Ha 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 ha. No, no, they have not. Um, if anything, uh, it's gotten uh, weirder. Um, he's rely. He's talking when he talks about biotechnology. He's talking specifically about the ability to alter the genetic material within a living organism. Uh, and the examples that he, that he cites most immediately are tinkering with bacteria, tinkering with viruses, in order to have them produce substances that have some kind of uh, palliative remedial property within, the, within, within humans. Um, so, so it's kind of starting... <laughs> very very small um but but he spends the bulk of this chapter interacting with a couple of works that 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 uh, i had uh i had never read uh the the titles um oh lee silver is one of the one of the writers that he's looking at uh there's another one whose name i'm not seeing immediately anyway uh, what these these thinkers have imagined is is a kind of future in which this this uh, biotechnology has given human beings the ability to uh, n- alter themselves uh, in in substantive ways, and that uh, at w- which they are incredibly enthusiastic about. Incidentally, and he finds their enthusiasm. Um, incredibly creepy mm. which uh, I think is reasonable <laughs> um, so 
the contrast that he first draws is the one that uh, that I think Silver is the one who 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 draws this contrast that in the future in the future that there will be this <laughs> distinction between the normals you know the people who just get born in the normal old fashioned way um, with their you know crapshooted genes that might or might turn out okay. And then what they call the gin-rich people, the genetically rich people, the people whose uh, whose DNA has been carefully selected in order to eliminate or add in uh, particular traits so that there's superior people. And in this future, Larry Silver imagines that all, every everything of importance will be done by gin-rich people because, of course, they'll do it better. Um, it will be a culture of... Superman, Excelsior, ever upwards, right? You know, so Silver is is incredibly, uh, incredibly stoked by this by this imagining. Uh, as as you might imagine, Purdy's not, uh, because he he sees this as uh, undercutting a particularly useful thing that happens to that happens as a side effect of the fact that we don't get to choose our genes which is that we have to deal with others, we have to deal with ourselves when we are not, when they are not, exactly all that we could wish them to be. Um, So there are a couple, there are several binaries uh, that he kind of sets with, normal versus gen-rich, altering other organisms, altering other organisms versus altering ourselves, that the biotechnology seemed to be at uh, when he's writing in 1999 had seemed to be drawing lines uh, in places uh, for for ethical reasons, um, altering other organisms versus altering ourselves, uh, using the biological uh, using using genetic technology to cure um, uh, harmful conditions versus using it to enhance. Our, our bodily powers. Uh, the problem, though, is that it's 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 not quite that it's not quite that easy. You can't just draw those arbitrary lines, because how do you define health? Do you define health simply as the elimination of negatively harmful conditions, or do you define health as the existence of of particular positive conditions? In which case, how do you even tell the difference between a cure and an enhancement? Right. Uh, another tension that he sees is uh, a kind of freedom or uh, a kind of liberty to grow and ever improve, which people like Silver are are enthusiastic about, versus the idea that our that the the crapshoot of our genes uh, has led humans to, and uh, not in every society, but um, in many societies, and and what what Purdy thinks is a good idea to prevail is the idea that there would be equality uh, among humans, even even across uh, radical differences. You know that that we could uh, we could see. Uh, you know, a, a, a person who cannot, uh, you know, cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot see, has different, um, you know, mental capacities, has different, you know, uh, capacities of mobility, and say, but that, but this is this is a person who is worthy of of equal respect. This is a person who is valuable, uh, and he sees that being discarded if if we can if we can custom make ourselves. Uh, and he go. What he goes back to is this idea of love. Everything comes back to love. You know. Thank you, Dante. Mm. Um, that human as humans, we we love two different kinds of things. We love the made thing, and we love the given thing, um, and we love them in different ways. Uh, if if I set out to make a table. When I'm done, if I have succeeded in making that table, uh, and the table does what the table ought to do, and it looks good, and it works, and all the rest of it, I will love that table. It's, you know, I will be proud of it. Um, if it falls over, 
and it looks terrible and all the rest of it. Um, I will not love that table because I failed. However, um, my children, uh, they weren't, you know, I didn't make them the way that I could make a piece of furniture. Uh, they are given in a particular way. And so even though, um, even though Baron at, at the slightest provocation will just yell at the top of his, you know, tiny voice at you because, uh, he needed banana in his mouth two seconds ago. And where is it? (laughs) Um, there is a givenness of my son. He, 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 he is what he is. He is how he is. I, I, I didn't have control over that. And I love him precisely, uh, because he is this thing other than me that, that I can love in this, you know, in a, in a kind of mysterious way. Uh, his very difference from me makes that, that, that quality of love, uh, something better and higher. It seems, uh, it seems that Purdy considers versus the way that I could love the table I made. What happens if I could? What happens if I'd had Baron made to order? Right. Do I love him? Do I love him as my son, or do I love him as a table? And what if it doesn't work out? What if I ordered a, a violin prodigy and he doesn't violin prodigiously? <laughs> right. Right. Or, or what? Or what if he speaks violin as if it were a verb? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I, I, I think he's 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 raising some really good some really good points, um, and he's thinking as he does. He's thinking about what effect does this have on what things we love in what ways? What effect does this have on how we how we think about others, how we think about ourselves, how we think about um, you know our our, our community? Uh, one thing though is. Uh, he he focuses especially on the now, but I, I do think it's important to recognize that this isn't entirely new. Um, uh, there, a uh, hundred years ago, you would find an awful lot of people. In fact, most of the intelligentsia in America and Europe pretty stoked about the idea that we could uh, selectively breed people in order to have, um, you know, an ever more superior human species. Uh, it's not getting down into the genes and tinkering them with them one by one, but it is treating the human being as a kind of breeding stock. Eugenics, basically. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, Nazis came along and, and helped us see very, very vividly that that was a terrible plan. Um, and, and when I say fortunately, I, I don't mean that like, like Nazis was a good thing. But if, if I hate anything, Illinois Nazis. Yes. But 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 if anything, one of the good uh, one of the good uh, results was that I th- I think the culture, at least for a while, had to step back from that idea of of engineering people in that way and see it as an innately ugly thing. Um, but but you know, a hundred years ago. Everybody thought that was that was actually the cutting edge. That was the future. That was the way of progress. Um, the difference, though, between that and this, between where we were a hundred years ago and where we are today, is that this uh, this vision of self improvement through biotechnology is more of a kind of libertarian individualist thing. I shall make of myself what I will be. I shall make of my child what I will be. Whereas of necessity, if you're going to, you know, selectively breed human beings, you need some kind of community that's making those decisions for people. Um, uh, it, it might be a, a governmental solution. It might be some kind of more voluntary community where everybody signs up for the, the good breeding club, you know, or whatever. But, uh, the, what, what what Purdy seems to be critiquing, especially, is that libertarian individual. I shall make of myself what I would be, and he brings up Wired magazine again. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Nathan, anything to add there? Yeah, the only thing that I would add is that I I, I have to admit that I, I every time I think I've got a, a good solid answer to this, uh, I I think of a counterexample that. Uh, 
makes me question whether I had an answer in the first place. So, you know, I, I think about things like, you know, the sorts of dietary changes that, that are prescribed for pregnant women. Uh, you know, in some sense, that is altering things at the point of origin for better results. Now, I don't think it's the same thing as uh, gene therapy that makes you six foot four or, <laughs> you know, anything like that. Right. But I, I do have a hard time articulating what the strong difference is uh, right. so that, you know, I mean, when you're wandering around in that in those border cases, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like and I mean, this is an episode we did a long time ago. But the the question of cybernetics is always one that uh, that also troubles me because, uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, because I know it's going to you know, put me in the poorhouse. Uh, you know, I know that my son is probably going to need orthodontic braces, uh, when he gets a little bit older, uh, and old enough to take care of him. Uh, and I, and I know full well that there are people who live their whole lives with crooked teeth, but you know, I'm willing to undergo that procedure and I really don't think much about it. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, you know, just to, just to give, and obviously, and well, an example that I would obviously disapprove of, if he came to me and wanted, you know, human growth hormone so that he could hit harder in baseball, I would say, well, absolutely not. Uh, right. And it's not just a matter of side effects, although that's certainly one of the questions. Uh, but I, I, I think that Purdy is doing good rhetorical work here in, a, in an overly optimistic moment. But I think that when you try to get systematic about it, the questions get really hard before they get easy. Yeah. I mean, he does set that up when he says, you know, what's the difference between a cure and enhancement? And I don't think yeah, he ever yeah. really says, you know, and here's, here's the nice, easy way to deal with that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we did a profiles episode a couple of years ago with Christina Bieberlake about her book, profits of the post human, where we talk about, quite a bit of this stuff and and one one reason i like that book is it avoids being just anti-technology but at the same time she's clearly nervous about where uh quote-unquote enhancement is going to be taking us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean you've got google working on it, human immortality yeah which is scary enough <laughs> until you realize who's going to be made immortal it's not us it's going to be the tech millionaires you know? right and, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can say that, but then, I mean, if you had asked, you know, 30 years ago, there are going to be devices that will chart every street in the United States that you can hold in your pocket. I mean, I probably would have said back then, well, it'll be the millionaires who have those in their pockets, but I've got one in mine right now. Right. And if the device in your pocket continues to consume the amount of resources you do for all eternity, I will agree that... Uh, <laughs> the, the, the immortality will be offered to everybody but it won't because it can't be because if it is the world will end so they're only going to be able to give it to some people and the, and unless it, it doesn't and, uh, and, and everybody, everybody, everybody else is essentially going to have to be their slaves I'm telling you that's the, that's the direction this is going if indeed they can actually invent human immortality which I am skeptical of well, sure, I am too, I am too. All I'm saying is, once again, 30 years ago, I would have thought, you know, universal human access to, you know, something like Wikipedia would have been just insane to conceive in the 1980s. I mean, now it's a punchline and it's something we warn our freshmen against in writing class. But, I mean, think about the scope of that as a human project. It was, I mean, unimaginable when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Is... Do you think it's help? It it it, it gives us in particular a, a kind of advantage that that when we talk about this, we have theology that we can fall back on that that we that we can say things about about the human that are not just materialism, because one of the difficulties I had with the way he talked about mm-hmm. not just the technology but also the relationship of the human and the environment, which we're going to get to, is human beings you know in that in that way of thinking about the world um came out of nature what one of the problems is if if you if you kind of define human beings as with a kind of materialist biological limit on what you can say uh, is anything that we can do really unnatural 
you know, if if we if we came if we are the result of natural processes, if 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 everything that is is in us is, you know, is limited in that way, how is a human being making technologies that do particular things that different than you know a chimp making, you know, making a stick whereby he gets termites, and you can talk about the effect, but you know, it's not as if human beings are the only creatures whose acts change the environment that they live in. Um, you know, there, there's a dynamism in, in all ecology between the living creatures that live there. And, and by, by what standard do we, do we say that the ways that we change our environment are unnatural and those are natural and good? Well, David, you know. and, and, and an interesting thing is Purdy's most recent book, After Nature, is called After Nature specifically because there is no such thing as the natural anymore. And now he's right. coming at it from the opposite direction, which is there is nothing on the planet unspoiled by human hands. But I, I think one of the things he's, he's deconstructing in that book is the notion that there is such a thing as artificial versus natural. And one thing that was interesting slash terrifying to me is toward the end of the book, he kind of comes around on transhumanism. He, uh, hmm. he says that we need to be somewhere in between traditionalist solutions and transhumanist solutions. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, that, yeah, go ahead. So, so that, I mean, that's, that's basically kind of making my point. I don't think, I, I don't think he has where he's standing the, uh, the ideas, the, the 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 sort of basic ideas to to say no, stop this train. Mm. Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting too on the on the ethical level. Uh, you know, the categories of faithfulness on one hand give us a framework for the good life, even as technological realities change. I think. Right, uh, and then on the other hand, you know, the notion of the human being as the image of God uh, really does. I mean, if we if we consider it in its, you know, ancient Near Eastern context, you know, the human body is the sacred object in the temple, and the temple of the Creator God is the entire world. There's a liturgical and there's a sacramental angle to this that really does give us a a foothold. Uh, now, I, I would probably uh, be remiss if I didn't note that there's a, a Nietzschean strand of thought that you know you find in the you know the sort of Donna Haraway cyborg manifesto stream of things that says well you know there never was a pure origin. Well, I mean in Christian theology there is, uh, right. and, I, and I and I would add to say that even though Grubbs and I disagree on the literary slash historical character of those creation narratives. Both of us would call them creation narratives. Both of us would talk about a creation doctrine. And right. both of us would say that what we are living in terms of human existence has a whole heck of a lot to do with that doctrine of creation. Right. Well, in the final chapter, Purdy introduces three sorts of ecologies. Nathan, what does he mean by that weird word? And uh, how does it relate to social responsibility and the commons and the other things this book is meant to restore? I love ecology because, on the one hand, it is not simple uh, struggle. It's not simple chaos. Uh, it's not simply a gladiatorial combat, like we were mentioning earlier. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also not uh, simply raw, inert material with which we can do as we will. Uh, instead, ecology, uh, as a term, implies that there is a balance that is possible there, even if, as we find it, it is out of balance. And so, you know, in, in secular terms, we're just talking about some of the shortcomings of this sort of secular model. But in secular terms, ecology is about as good a moral uh, framework as you can come up with, because it assumes that uh, if you do bad things, or even if you do too much of a good thing, then things can be thrown out of balance in a way that's also ultimately going to harm not just you and your soul, but also the world around you. Uh, so a moral eco- ecology, as Purdy lays things down, uh, involves all of those human relationships uh, that are sort of at that neighbor level. So, I mean, are you generous? Uh, are you trustworthy? Do you tell the truth? 
uh, do you welcome your neighbor? Do you welcome the stranger? So on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, once again, I think that 10 years ago, I would have said that, you know, my own life was entirely too isolated. Uh, and I would have been right, by the way, uh, because huh. I didn't spend a whole lot of time with my neighbors. I didn't spend a whole lot of time with the folks in my walking distance sphere. Uh, I, I would say honestly that, you know, my kids getting to be, you know, 11 years old and six years old uh, has really brought me into an awareness of this ecology as it still exists in some places. Uh, right. I would say that our little neighborhood, uh, and, you know, just like any neighborhood, it's not perfect. And just like any neighborhood, it's not a full demographic cross section of North America. But in our little neighborhood, uh, I, I've discovered that moral ecology really is important, not only for my kids, but also for me as I, re I, as I relate with the parents who live in the other houses on our block. Um, so we'll talk about the other two ecologies here directly. I'm just sure of it. Uh, but as far as that goes, um, you know, these three ecologies that Purdy lays down have to do with the fact that our lives and not just as individuals but as em embodied and social lives really do have a balance that we can reach and really do have bad sorts of imbalance that they threaten to fall into david is there anything else about that term ecology that you'd want to add oh j just that it, it seems like a motive to be apt towards if that makes sense mm -hmm. you know yeah. that 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 that's that that's a paradigm that he seems really comfortable with, mm -hmm. um, because uh, for him the ecolog the ecological framework is uh, for, from what I can tell the primary paradigm that he has for thinking ethically. Mm -hmm. Well, the first of the three ecologies is what he calls moral ecology. David, what is a moral ecology, and how do you see it being played out or not in our various communities today? Well, it was what uh, it was what Nathan was developing with uh, with this idea of of uh, these are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, <laughs> in your neighborhood. Yes, um, the, and, and and not and not just that. It's the moral ecology is the the sphere of interpersonal relations. Um, Persons in the specific, individuals, people that that you actually encounter uh, as, you know, oh look, I am I, and you are you, and we relate. Uh, of course, I mean this includes family, this includes friendship, it includes neighbors that you see and interact with. Uh, but uh, Purdy is also also insists that this goes beyond. Um, those things that we recognize as part of the private sphere, right? Returning to that public-private divide. Mm -hmm. It also includes uh, the relationship of teachers and students at school. It includes the relationships of coworkers in the vocational world. Um, it would, you know, it, it, it borders on the public sphere. Uh, the difference is that uh, in this moral ecology, you cannot you cannot treat the other person as an abstraction. They're there. They have a face. They have a voice. They have an agenda that's um, you know that that might be running parallel with yours. It might be running against yours, right? You know you, when you walk up to the counter and you know order your sandwich, uh, there is a person behind the counter, and they might be five minutes from knocking off and going home. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that has a real uh, a real effect on on you know what is otherwise a a consumer economic exchange. There there's a real personal moral connection that's happening there. Uh, this is the sphere in which values are are primarily inculcated because this is where they are lived and modeled. Um, you can talk about a good person, you can talk about an honest person, a kind person, and so forth. But all of those are just words until you've seen a kind person uh, 
stop to pick up a tortoise that was in the middle of the road and put it on the side of the road. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, saw that the other day. Um, you know, these, these, these kinds of things, uh, it really is important that, that, that we, that we see them. And, and if you, you know, you think about your own childhood, uh, the values that you hold, um, are typically the, the ones that you value most are the ones that you've, that you've seen most dramatically. Uh, you've, you've seen it, you've felt it, you've lived it. Um, he also points out, uh, he, he brings this up in the, uh, in, in the conclusion of the book, but it's also, uh, something that he brought up in, in chapter three. So, so what's happening in the conclusion is kind of a, uh, a, a return to that. But he says in chapter three that we uh, we we notice the moral ecology most when it's not there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 when it's working properly, uh, it, it just seems as if the world is working smoothly. It's it's when there's a, it's when there's a failure in the moral ecology that we that we noticed how important it is. When you start down the aisle of the grocery store and you're looking at something, and someone else starts down the other down the other side of the aisle, and they're just running their buggy right down the middle of the, of the aisle, and they aren't stopping and they aren't slowing down, and you have to kind of shove up against the shelf in order for them to get by. You are suddenly very aware of how important the moral ecology is, because <laughs> you got almost got run over by a shopping cart. Um, you know, we, we we notice those the 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 deterioration of common courtesies of of those kinds of things when when they are when they are gone. Um, and it's. Uh, Frankly, one of the th- reasons why I like this moral ecology uh, idea is that it gives me yet another reason to be grumpy about uh, all, all, all the people around me on their smartphones. <laughs> uh, because they're actually trying to curate their neighbors in meat space. <laughs> That's nice. You know, and, and yeah. Yeah. Nathan? Yeah, I mean, to, I, I think you pretty much hit it there that, I mean, this is something that uh, in most cases and, and, you know, in in most moments, you don't really notice the moral ecology. It's those moments where the moral ecology fails to materialize that you suddenly realize uh, something has really gone wrong here. And, and these sorts of things, I mean, often make their way into, uh, you know, Facebook memes and all kinds of groovy things, uh, which is kind of its own irony that, you know, people are complaining about, you know, kids spending all their time on their smartphones and then they post it on Facebook to complain about it. Uh huh. Well, moral ecology flows directly into social ecology. What's the relationship between those two terms, Nathan? And again, where do you see it around you? Well, social ecology has to do with what what most of us would call the political, broadly speaking. These are the institutions uh, that that shape our everyday comings and goings. These are the uh, police departments and the schools. These are the, uh, you know, city government. Uh, These are firefighters, things like this. Uh, And Purdy talks about these as things to which, you know, someone could devote a career uh, and he harks back to his earlier distinction between public and private and the recent uh, decline of the public as something that you should seek to devote your life to. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you, I've seen it most, uh, oh, most saddeningly, I'll put it that way, uh, in recent political campaigns, especially in Wisconsin, where, you know, you can get elected to fairly high office by painting school teachers as the villains who are making sure that none of us have any money. Um, you know, that, that mentality, uh, certainly makes me angry most times this morning though. It just kind of makes me sad. Uh, but what Purdy insists on is that it's not just the career, uh, you know, 
license bureau worker. It's not just the career public school teacher. It's not just the career police officer uh, who have something at stake in the social ecology. But once again, when people either withdraw from that social ecology and say, you know, well, I'll leave that to the professionals, or I, I would add to that, uh, and I might go, be going even farther than Purdy here, when people make it their life mission to oppose the social ecology and, you know, go in a, what I would call sort of an extreme libertarian direction to where, you know, not only, uh, not only, you know, am I uh, irritated with, you know, the, I'm trying to think of another government agency that I haven't hit yet. Uh, not only am I irritated with the city government, uh, but I'm going to, you know, try to incorporate our own town over here so that we don't have to send any of our property taxes to them. You know, I mean, that, I think Purdy would say, uh, is a direct assault on the social ecology. And therefore, once again, and I like this about his thought, it's a neglect of one of the things that makes us that zoon politicae, the political animal, the beast that lives in community. Uh, we are actively attacking some of what makes us human beings. Uh, David, I mean, is there anything else about that? I mean, since it's a middle step between the moral and the natural, uh, it, it strikes me to treat it as a middle step. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I kept thinking of as I was reading this section was uh, uh, Benedict Anderson's uh, book on uh, imagined community, and he's thinking particularly in terms of of nationalism and how, how something like nationalism is only possible when, uh, a group of people can imagine their connection to others outside of those concrete, uh, those concrete relations that, that Purdy talks about in the moral sphere. Right. Um, the, the way in which I am connected to, uh, you know, a uh, a low uh, a low earning uh, uh, you know person who's who's working at a restaurant or a police officer in Missouri or uh, or whatever, right? You know, the the ways in which I'm I'm uh, c- connected in this in this larger thing that I can't actually see. Mm-hmm. Right, all I see are people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, that 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 seems to be uh, that what Purdy was doing reminded me of that that uh, that one of the failures in the in the social ecology is is a failure to properly imagine the ways in which we are connected to um, these other real people who actually do exist on the moral level, mm-hmm. um, uh, which which made me think of. Uh, uh, well, the, the article that was making the rounds about liberal smugness. Um, one of the things in that article was talking about the uh, the lady in Kentucky whose name escapes me and completely underca- undercuts Davis? my point. Yes, yes. Yeah, doesn't that completely undercut my point? Anyway, one of the things that that was <laughs> uh, that that the article talked about was that uh, you know the the people the folks who disagreed with her. Many of them taking a kind of uh, pleasure in in her discomfiture that she was in jail that she was conquered uh, the you know the Schadenfreude of it and the article was you know just pointing out here's a human being you know here's a real live individual person who actually did had to sit in jail have to sit in jail while you were having these you know conversations on Twitter uh, who actually did. Um, you know what she thought was the right thing, and you might disagree, but that's but you know there's a real there's a real individual there. Um, you know, on the other hand, that's uh, that's what I see as as uh, what the black black life Black Lives Matter movement is about, saying that an actual human being uh, dies. Um, when the police shoot someone, it's not a criminal mm-hmm. statistic. Um, right. There's an actual, there's an actual person there. Um, anyway, uh, 
the, the interconnectedness of those things, I think, is 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 still something that that Purdy thinks we have to get right in order to get all these spheres right. Well, the uh, the third ecology is the natural world, the thing we're generally referring to when we talk about ecology outside of this book. How is natural ecology, David, influenced by the previous two types? Well, it, it necessarily is. Um, he he he's already talked in the book you know, on other occasions about the ways that we have to think about our 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 ordinary day to day routines. Uh, how those how those decisions that that we make each day um, cascade when taken in mass and end up shaping the environment around us. Um, right now, I'm sitting in a building that's running air conditioning, and all the lights are on. And I know for a fact that all the lights have been on all night because this particular building houses an art gallery, and you know, for security purposes, the lights were on. Well, somewhere down the chain, that power came from somewhere, and that had a result in this uh, in this third sphere of natural ecology. I don't know what that is, right? But Purdy, uh, I think, is pretty insistent that um, I ought to find out. I ought to care. And every one of my decisions is that way. You know, we're getting into life as guilt territory, which I'm sure delights you, Michael. Um, <laughs> or or perhaps as much as anything you. does. <laughs> yeah, um, but the the importance of the of the public sphere here is uh, we need we need to think about the connection of the moral the moral ecology and the natural ecology because all of our little decisions end up taken in aggregate to be big decisions, and all of those decisions have have an impact. Uh, the public ecology is important. The social ecology is important at this level. Because he says, uh, and he said this uh, in in his earlier chapter, in chapter three, that any kind of action, um, any kind of intervention on behalf of the health of the natural ecology, is really only possible at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, uh, page page one hundred and one. There is no other way than politics to decide for or against strip mining or the clear cutting of national forests. Uh, that that ultimately, if you know, if you do care about this thing at the personal, at the level of the of the moral ecology, uh, it has to work its way out in the next in the next ring up, um, because it's only at that level uh, that those kinds of of sweeping changes are possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and certainly lots of uh, lots of issues. You, you finished it up with what issues have intervened since Purdy wrote about the book. Um, I don't know about a lot of new ones, um, but a lot of the things that he's uh, that he's kind of pointing towards in 1999 have we are further down the track of you know discussing those and dealing with those. I mean, one of the things that uh, Purdy doesn't uh, he he kind of talks about. Uh, to some extent, the idea of where we get our energy from, and he talks sort of towards renewables. Um, but now we have the the actual issue of, all right, you want to use wind? Where do you put the giant turbines? Who lives mm-hmm. next to them? What happens to uh, the environment that those are around? Do they have an impact on the environment around them? What about a giant you know, solar energy farm? What big flat place do you put that in? Ooh, a desert. How about a desert? Those are shiny. But what lived in that desert and doesn't now? You know, we we are further down trajectories that he talked about, and each of our decisions to um, mitigate ways that we saw ourselves clearly hurting the ecology in the past, uh, as we try out new solutions, we we find... Uh, new and more interesting, complicated ways in which what we thought was going to be a great solution um, is more complicated than we thought. Mm-hmm. Specifically because everything is so connected. Oh, yeah. Specifically yeah. because and, it's an ecology. And you don't realize it until you tinker with it and you're like, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. didn't, didn't mean that to happen. Uh, I, you know, I was reading an article uh, a few months ago about 
apparently uh, the the vibrations in the air uh, by uh, wind turbines um, uh, affect bats in the way they fly. So, you know, lots of bats end up getting chopped up by wind turbines because they don't know how to navigate around them. Mm. You know, who thought about... Who will speak for the bats? Anyway. <laughs> well, we are rapidly running out of time, so I'm calling an audible and skipping the next planned question. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I- ending instead with, not with what I've left out, which is what we've done the last two episodes, but rather what this book still has to say to us in 2016. To what extent are we still living in Jedediah Purdy's world? And Nathan, you take this first and then pass it along to David when you're done. I think that we are dealing with a lot of the things that Purdy anticipates. Uh, as listeners know who have listened to any of our political episodes, I don't see a whole lot of difference uh, between Ronald Reagan, either of the George Bushes, Bill Clinton, I almost said George Clinton, Bill Clinton, <laughs> there is and, a Barack, and Barack Obama in terms of real policy. Uh, so I really do think that the sorts of politics that he is talking about in 1999, we've been living with for 17 years. Uh, we're still an interventionist nation. We are still spending, you know, massive amounts of money to maintain military presence on six continents. Uh, we are still, you know, forging trade deals that are, on one hand, you know, making life materially better for folks in India and China, uh, but on the other hand, are escalating the environmental dangers that Purdy was writing about 17 years ago. So I think that this remains a book that we need to heed. Uh, It remains a book whose arguments remain valid. I still think there there are places, I mean, for instance, when he says that we should, you know, seek for cure, not augmentation. I don't think he was nearly systematic enough about proposing a way to do that work of discernment. Uh, But I will say that, frankly, everything that he writes about in this book uh, strikes me as still present and in most cases more urgent than it was in 1999. Uh, The ecological crisis is more dire. Uh, The political situation is still one, uh, even as we get, you know, the weirdness of the Trump campaign. And I'm going to be listening to the City of Man episode on that when I commute home today. Um, even then we still get, you know, this, this massive sense, especially among folks who are under 40, that politics just isn't something that concerns us. Uh, so I mean, I, you know, there's very little in this book, uh, that I would say has become a, um, a question of last decade rather than a question of our moment. Some of his answers leave some to be desired, but you know, Hey, everyone's hit and miss. What do you have to say, David? Here, here. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, there's uh, when we look around us, I, I don't see a whole lot that um, isn't either exactly what he's talking about, or a further complication that's down to, that's further downstream from a trajectory that he that he does discuss. Um, so yeah, I do think it's still relevant. As much as I joked about his dated pop culture references at the very beginning of the book. Um, yeah, I think this, I I think this book is still, uh, still incredibly relevant. Uh, it does make me, uh, it does interest me though to see, uh, I I would be interested in, in what he thought of things like, uh, Dreyer's Benedict option or, um, you know, folks who say, uh, we will find the solution to, uh, dysfunction in this particular ecology by retreating into this other ecology and not not the i the individual will make myself you know wired magazine thing which which he loathes but of uh i will create a face-to-face you know i will engage in a in a face-to-face community that will you know offset the dysfunction of the of the social sphere um I, i would be interested to know uh, what his uh, what his assessment of something like that would be? 
Michael? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you guys. I think I think the, the problems he identifies are still with us and, and maybe even more with us. But I just, I don't know. I'm so profoundly pessimistic about their ever being able to be solved. And uh, so when he is elucidating the problems, I'm with him. And when he starts to put forth these, everybody just needs to work together and work at their local level solutions, I just... I, I can't believe it, um, and and I, I think I said last week that that might be a failure of imagination on my part, and I I can cop to that, and I hope that's what it is, <laughs> but uh, I I don't know. Bummer. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, David, what are we doing next week? Well, next week is our last uh, episode of of this particular semester, and I thought it might be uh, fun to return to something that uh, I'm I'm sure will be on all of our minds as we are uh, in the thick of grading or prepping for final exams and final papers and all the rest of it. Uh, It's a little essay by uh, the French philosopher Simone Weil uh, entitled The Right Use of Studies, which... uh, uh, is one that I've gotten a chance to teach in composition here, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll post a link for that so people can read ahead. Very good. Until then, you can check in on us at our website, which is christianhumanist.org. You can send us an email for some future listener feedback episode. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. For David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.